and suddenly uh, every other person there from there on forward has to deal with extra process, extra paperwork, extra steps. Uh, and, you know, in many cases, uh, these can be uh, just eliminated. Hi, welcome to the Tarun Stevenson Leadership Channel. I'm your host, Tarun Stevenson, and we are all about helping you lead, communicate, and grow to your full potential. Whether you're tuning in on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or your favorite podcasting app, don't forget to subscribe and follow so that you can stay up to date with all our latest episodes. All right, here's the latest episode. Let's get into it. Hey, everybody, Tarun Stevenson here, and I am here with Roger Dooley, who is an author and speaker, and he's a bit of a marketing expert in the field of neuroscience. So I'm really interested to talk to Roger today because I have a little bit of a fascination with neuroscience and how our brain works. Welcome to the show, Roger. Well, thanks for inviting me, Tarun. I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be great. And now, uh, before we get into our conversation today, which is going to be about the gospel of easy, talking about how reducing friction in the workplace and with your customers can actually lead to greater results for your business and for your teams. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, uh, what, what experiences you've had and what's led you to this path of uh, focusing on the neuroscience of marketing? Right. Well, so as not to occupy our entire session time here, Drew, and I'll do that on fast forward. I, no I was trained as an engineer, worked as an engineer for a few years, worked my way into management, always visualized myself as a corporate type. Uh, yeah. um, and uh, actually, by the time I was 30, achieved a, a pretty good progress in that space. I was in charge of strategy for a Fortune 1000 company and chose that time to bail out and become an entrepreneur. This was the early days of home computers and pretty much I've been an entrepreneur ever since. I've started multiple businesses, mostly with some kind of uh, technology orientation, not necessarily uh, high tech themselves, but uh, I uh, built a business called College Confidential, uh, which we later sold to the Daily Mail Group, and that's still going strong. And it's probably one thing I'm very proud of in my history that uh, that site, which really is a service to students and parents who hope to um, uh, go to college or have their child go to college, uh, is still kicking after, boy, going on, this year will be its 20th anniversary. Uh, wow. I haven't been affiliated with the site in a period of years, but uh, uh, it's, uh, it's good to see that we're still helping people that way. And, but uh, back about uh, 15 years or so ago, uh, I saw the areas of neuroscience and marketing coming together. And I wasn't the only person to see that. There were already a few early neuromarketing startups then offering neuromarketing services, but, but uh, I, being a digital guy, registered a domain, started writing there, uh, got some traction, and that's pretty much what's been driving my activity ever since. Uh, I've now got probably 1,500 articles between uh, my original neuroscience marketing website, my Roger Dooley site, and uh, Forbes. Uh, I've got my Brainfluence podcast uh, that's got uh, 350 episodes now, uh, and they all focus on using uh, typically, uh, some kind of science, neuroscience, behavioral science, uh, to do better in marketing and business. Uh, right. My first book, Brainfluence, came out about uh, nine years or so ago. Uh, and that uh, focused on, it had its roots in neuromarketing, 
uh, but also got a lot into behavioral science because what I found is, particularly for small and medium business, uh, they do not have the budgets to apply the tools of neuromarketing, at least uh, at that time, because very expensive. Now, if you're a BMW or a Coca-Cola, you can run a $100,000 neuromarketing study on your Super Bowl ad. And that makes a lot of sense. But uh, for much more typical marketing situations, even at big businesses, you can't afford to spend a ton of money to answer one question. So by using behavioral science, I found that uh, we could find rules and practices that could guide your marketing. Not necessarily always tell you 100% sure what's going to work, but give you a basis for uh, your original concept, your original headline, your original design that you can then test and refine. Uh, and that's that's been my focus. Uh, then uh, a little more than a year ago, I wrote my second book, or actually I've been writing, was writing for longer than that, but it came out, my second book, Friction, came out. Mm. Uh, and that is all about the science of human effort and how that drives our success in marketing uh, by uh, typically minimizing friction in customer experience and also our success as companies by minimizing wasted effort for employees. Because, uh, you know, today, Tarun, uh, at least in the U.S., there is a huge problem with employee engagement. Uh, there, uh, the vast majority of employees are not highly engaged with their company. Uh, many are uh, actively disengaged, which means they're probably looking for a job or just like totally tuned out. And there's a, a sort of a big group in the middle that is, uh, you know, they don't really care much one way or the other. And that's that's a problem for businesses because first of all, these people are not gonna be the ones that are gonna make your enterprise a success. And also they're not gonna be the ones that are going to deliver fantastic customer experience. Right. So uh, for me, the key has been eliminating friction. And by friction, I mean unnecessary effort, not that sort of crazy boss friction or uh, toxic coworker friction, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, rather, uh, wasted effort, bad processes, uh, dumb rules that you have to follow that waste your time and, and so on. Well, I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation, Roger. And, and even if you're listening today or watching today and, and you're not necessarily involved in marketing, a, a lot of what uh, Roger is talking about, I think applies to leadership and uh, the interface between different people and just uh, the way of understanding the way people work. If you want them to be more engaged, if you're a leader, and uh, wanting them to go along with you in the direction that you're going. I think that we're gonna get some great gold out of this. So why don't we dive straight in, Roger, to what you've coined the gospel of easy, creating frictionless uh, business environments. Why does it matter to remove the friction with uh, customers and employees. And so, as you noted before, friction being uh, the difficulty of uh, getting the job done or getting uh, the customer experience uh, processed. Why is it important to remove friction? What is it about the way our brain works that uh, doesn't like any kind of opposition or obstacle? Right. Well, let's let's focus first on customer experience because uh, there's some right. great examples I think that uh, everybody can relate to. And Gartner, the big uh, market research company, uh, did a pretty amazing study of customer service interactions where mm -hmm. people had to call into a company for a return, tech support, uh, so you know, an order question, something like that, and uh, they then surveyed these customers and asked them. Uh, whether the experience was uh, high effort, low effort, or somewhere in between. 
and then asked them several other questions. And what they found was pretty amazing. They found that about nine out of 10 customers who had a high effort experience said they would likely be disloyal to that company, to that brand. Mm. That's 10 times as high as the number of who had a low effort experience who made that claim. So a uh, huge, huge difference there. Uh, when it came to repeat purchases, 94% of the low effort customers said they would buy again. Only 4% of the high effort customers did. Uh, just an enormous difference. And turn, you know how important word of mouth is these days. Yeah. Everybody uh, wants reviews, they want ratings. Uh, they're going to Yelp or whatever their other favorite uh, website is, Amazon, to read what other people thought before they make a decision. Well, uh, for the high effort customers, 88% said they would say bad things about the brand. For the low effort customers, just 1% said they would say bad things. Wow. That's I mean, talk about an amazing difference. Mm. So, and now if it, you know, all that sounds pretty scary. If, if some of our listeners thinking, well, yeah, my customer experience isn't exactly the easiest or the best. Yeah. Uh, what's even scarier is they are not comparing you to your direct competitors. Right. Uh, they are comparing your effort to whatever the lowest friction, the easiest experience is for them, whether that is Uber, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Zoom, or you know, whatever they consider to be really easy, uh, that is the bar that they are setting for everyone else. Yes. Uh, and you know, that's why uh, you know, the pandemic has really exposed some differences uh, in companies, and particularly mm -hmm. in the US where we've been hit pretty hard, but I'm sure you've had that same experience there. Uh, you know, I think it was Warren Buffett that said that when uh, uh, the tide goes out, you see uh, who wasn't wearing swimming trunks. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, every company that I can think of has been talking about digital transformation and how yeah. they're streamlining their customer digital processes and, you know, yeah. letting customers do whatever they want uh, online or via mobile. Uh, when the pandemic hit, we saw the brands that had, were not wearing trunks, that they were talking digital transformation but they weren't doing it or they weren't doing it very well. Yeah. And those companies that were doing it well thrived. You know, right now we are connecting via Zoom. Mm. Uh, and in fact, uh, it is more or less a generic term uh, for web conferencing these days. It is. That wasn't it? true a yeah. year ago. You right. know, now it's like Google is for search, you know, just Google it. Yeah. But, you know, in 2019 or earlier, uh, you might have said, well, let's jump on a WebEx, you know, let's yeah. do a Hangout. Uh, or yeah. do Skype, uh, you know, now it's, it's all Zoom. And why is that? Uh, it's because Zoom was so incredibly easy to use yeah. uh, that people could adopted it very quickly. They didn't have to sort out WebEx or, micro, or Skype, which I mean, they're not horrible products, but they, are simply, no. they were simply not as easy to use. Uh, since then, all those big brands have really, they've renamed their product lines. Now you've got Microsoft mm. Teams and uh, Google Meet instead of Hangouts. Uh, they've streamlined the interface. They've added backgrounds and all kinds of cool features like that. Yeah. But uh, Zoom was there first. And you know, during what Zoom's mission statement is, this is probably the shortest, clearest mission statement that I've ever heard. Make communications frictionless. Wow. That's it. And they there did that. And so when the pandemic hit, suddenly everybody had to jump on web conferences uh, and you know, typically the corporate IT department would go to a Microsoft product or a Cisco product because they know these are enterprise grade solutions and whatnot. But mm. 
they didn't want a bazillion support calls from their new users who were yeah. using these things for the first time, couldn't figure out how to get them installed, give them the permissions for the microphone and all that stuff. So uh, they let people use Zoom uh, and Zoom quadrupled their customers, their paying customers, not their wow. users. I don't know what their users went up, but their yeah. paying customers quadrupled just in the first part of last year. So uh, their stock price is now 10x what it was at their IPO price. So, uh, you know, for them, eliminating friction allowed them to displace these much, much bigger brands. You know, Zoom does not have better engineers than Microsoft or Cisco. No. They certainly don't have the marketing budget of either of those companies. Uh, they don't have the development budget of those companies, but by their single clear focus, uh, they were able to surpass them. You know, I tried to find Cisco's mission statement, uh, yeah. and uh, this, this in itself was a high friction experience because I searched <laughs> uh, on Google on Cisco's website, searched yeah. for you know mission statement, mission, couldn't find anything there. I used Google to search Cisco's website because often I find Google knows better what's on companies' websites than their own search engine does. <laughs> they do. Couldn't find it. Uh, and I finally found one using a third-party site that was a few years old, but it talked about creating the future of the internet by uh, creating unprecedented value for customers, employees, uh, investors, and ecosystem partners, whatever they are. I mean, what does this even mean? What kind of clarity does that provide? If I'm a developer at Cisco uh, who's going to implement a new feature, does this provide clarity uh, as to whether this is a good feature or a bad feature. Uh, you know, am I going to be providing unprecedented value for all these groups yeah. with it? How the hell would I know? You know, so it, it's useless. So I, you know, to me, that's, that's one big example. I'll, I'll throw out one other uh, example that everybody is familiar yeah, with right. in customer experience. And, you know, for most of my life, and perhaps that's true for you too, Tarun, uh, I found taxis to be a big effort saver you know, compared to taking public transportation, maybe changing buses or something, compared to walking a long distance, especially in bad weather, taxis were a luxury. I mean, I always wanted to take a taxi. Uh, it's just, that, you know, sometimes I couldn't really justify the cost. Yeah. But then Uber came along and suddenly we saw how much wasted effort there was in that taxi process. You know, from standing by the side of the street, waving to try and get a taxi's attention, if there was even a taxi in the area, yeah. from uh, wondering when you've booked a taxi for the airport and it's now three minutes late, you're yeah. wondering, are they around the corner or do they just lose my request completely and am I going to miss my airplane? Uh, you know, all uh, into payment. I mean, payment is one of the worst things. I've, uh, do, I do a lot of, I did a lot of international travel, not so much during mm -hmm. the pandemic uh, for speaking and such. Uh, and, you know, I, how many times have I had to go down a line of taxis asking each one, do you take credit cards? Do you take credit cards? Yeah. Now in some cities, this is pretty well sorted, but in other places, not, uh, not so well. And then, you know, when you, you complete the ride, you've got to reach in your pocket, get a credit card or cash. Uh, you, the, maybe the driver's got to reach under the seat to get a machine and establish an internet connection. I mean, horribly uh, effortless, effortful uh, compared to Uber, where you just get out of the car and say goodbye and thank yeah. you. You know, I mean, we didn't see that. That friction was there the whole time. The taxi process hadn't changed uh, pre-Uber and post-Uber, but suddenly it was like we could see what was going on. In fact, what I often joke is that my book gives people a set of imaginary friction goggles uh, that will let them see friction where they didn't see it before because it yeah. took the founders of Uber to see that 
there is a lot of wasted effort in this process, and we have the tools and the technology to eliminate it. I mean, they were enabled by smartphones. Pre-smartphone, you couldn't have really done too much with that process. No. But they had the vision to see, A, there was a problem here that could be solved, where other people didn't see it as a problem, and then also then, of course, to solve it. Yeah. That's I, as you were talking, Roger. I thought of two examples immediately that I experienced through last year, and and what it highlighted to me is that very often we, as uh, leaders or as organisations or businesses, can make decisions that are convenient for us and our how we work, not realising the friction that it causes the other person. I remember right at the beginning of um, starting this podcast, I started it during the pandemic lockdowns. And I had a particular type of software that I used to uh, interview people. And it was a good piece of software. And I found it very, very convenient. The only thing is that every one of my guests had problems using it because they were used to using Zoom. And so I very quickly switched to Zoom to avoid that uh, constant friction that we had at the beginning of those interviews. Another uh, incident I had, um, I, I lead in a not-for-profit organization and one of the arms of our uh, organization is to provide low-cost groceries to uh, families that are finding it difficult to go through the pandemic. And because of COVID, we had to have registers to sign customers in and track their details for uh, pandemic tracking. Now we moved to an electronic system because that's convenient for us. But the uh, biggest demographic for us was elderly people who found electronics and digital stuff very, very difficult. And I very quickly saw that I was going to cause a lot of problems for the customers after two days of having to stand there and talk them through what they were experiencing. We just went back to pen and paper because it was less friction for the customer, more work for us, but less friction for the customer. So talk to me about that interface between, uh, say, business or organizations making decisions that are convenient for them versus convenient for the customer and you see this a lot in government as well governments can be so inefficient uh, <laughs> and and frustrating and uh and often i think it's because what's it's decisions made that's convenient for them rather than the end user now turn you bring up a point that is really uh, very close to my heart because often uh when i'm uh encountering business uh, situations or reading about them. Uh, in my mind, I've got a vision of a meter that goes back and forth, good, good for the company, good for the customer. Yeah. Uh, now, sometimes you can get a win-win situation where you can simplify mm. a process and it works better for both. But often uh, there seems to be a trade-off. Uh, one place where I see that uh, is voice menus, where mm. You know, a company is looking and saying, wow, we are spending a ton on customer support and people are just calling in to perform these kinds of tasks. What if we could make them do it themselves with a voice menu system? Now, there is nothing wrong with self-service. Uh, you know, most supermarkets uh, now have self-checkout lines yeah. as well as cashier lines. Mm. If I've got one or two items that I know are barcoded, there's nothing complicated about them. I will always go through the self-checkout line because I know that I can be through that uh, in a few seconds, no human interaction, I'll be out the door. Yeah. Uh, but if I've got uh, a basket full of stuff, maybe stuff that has to be weighed or something where I don't know if there's a price or sticker on it or a barcode, uh, I'm gonna go through the checkout because I sure. 
know that I will be horribly inefficient at processing that order myself. Now, uh, you know, some stores give the, the option uh, and they've got ample checkout lines and ample self-checkout lines. Yeah. But uh, there are others that will try and push the customers into the self-checkout by having very limited number of cashiers. Yes. Uh, you know, so if you want to go through a cashier, you can do that, but you might have to wait a little bit. Uh, and sure. to me, the, the voice menu thing is the same way where, you know, uh, the concept is good. Like, I need to find out the store hours. Okay, great. Why not just push me to menu where I can press three and find out the store hours instead of waiting for the phone to ring and the human answer go into a queue or something. That's great. Uh, but when you force a customer to listen to nine different choices, which uh, of course have recently changed, so you're supposed to listen to them all. That's the obligatory <laughs> thing on all voice menus. Uh, and they're you know long menu items. You get to the end and none of them really satisfy your needs or you select one or dumps you into another voice menu. Before you know it, you've been interacting with the voice menu for 10 or 15 minutes yes. uh, and you still don't have what you were looking for. You know, at that point, this is when people start screaming representative operator mm. into their phone, mm. trying mm. to break out of this voice menu hell. Yeah. And, you know, to me, so that that is swinging to the point where it's no longer a helpful self-service to will let customers meet their needs quickly and efficiently. Yeah. It instead, it is intended to be a cost saver for the company. Uh, and if it makes the customers struggle, well, you know, hey, they'll, they'll have to deal with that. So, you know, I think that trade-off is, is really important. Uh, and it works internally too. Uh, one example in my book is a personal example. Yeah. Uh, I, like many people who work for corporations, have had to deal with expense reporting processes. Uh, and these are normally uh, kind of uh, arduous because every company has their own policies and procedures. Uh, and fortunately, as an entrepreneur, I've been able to uh, make that process pretty straightforward for myself. In other words, I don't have to have all kinds of checks and balances in there as, as if I had a thousand employees. Uh, but uh, for after I sold my business, I became a VP at this company and I had to follow the same expense reporting processes if I was traveling on business as anybody else. Yeah. And uh, for every single item, uh, even a two or $3 airport coffee, I would have to attach a physical piece of paper to my expense report if I wanted to be reimbursed for it. Uh, there was yeah. no you know, miscellaneous, no, uh, I had a coffee for $3, but I didn't have the receipt. Uh, yeah. This is not required by US tax law. This was a requirement of the company. Hmm. Uh, and it, uh, uh, it was annoying and I probably missed out on stuff because I lost receipts. Uh, and it, it really took a fair amount of time. It made the re expense reporting process longer because I was always fishing around for pieces of paper, trying to make sure they added up. One time I lost one somehow between recording it and sending my report in because somebody in accounting was going through each piece of paper, making sure that there was one for each item. So not only was it wasting my time, it was wasting <clears throat> their time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, so to me, that was a huge waste of time, but then you know, with this sort of good for the company, good for, in this case, the employee trade-off, yeah. the, uh, they improved the process. They digitized it. Uh, and so this, this should be pretty good, right? Well, what it forced me as the employee to do was now place all my pieces of paper on a flatbed scanner yeah. uh, or take an individual mobile photo of each one of them, tag those photos or those scanned items back to a line item on in the expense report, Plus, in this new digital process, I had to assign things like uh, account numbers to the items, which 
you know, not being an accountant was a, a total yeah. mystery to me in many cases, like, well, yeah. you know, what is this called? Where does this fit? Uh, and so what, the, what that did was it actually streamlined things for the people on the other end. It stream, made it easier for right. the company. Now all the accountants had to do was make sure that my work added up and do a very cursory check of my stuff. Uh, it saved them a lot of time, but it pushed even more time onto me and yeah. all of the other hundreds of employees that were having to follow that process. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and I, uh, I think we we could talk all day about these examples because I think uh, receipts are a big problem for me. I'm always losing my paper receipts, and I'm trying to get my uh, my church organization to move to digital tracking of receipts for that reason because I find it so frustrating trying to keep track of paper receipts. But uh, sorry, you were going to say something, and I cut you off just then. Well, yeah, yeah, I was going to point out that one of the uh, you know that's just typical, and there was a lack. What you know? Later on, uh, I asked the CFO of the business who, after I had left the company and he had left the company, uh, I was actually working my friction book and I, I hunted him down on LinkedIn and called him up and said, uh, you know, after we exchanged pleasantries and caught up, uh, I asked him why they had implemented that policy that was not required mm. by uh, U.S. law or tax policy, and he said it was because uh, we didn't, or management didn't, uh, Don Metropy made it himself personally. He didn't express it as it was his issue, but management did not trust employees not to cheat on their expense reports. Sure. So it was a lack of trust that drives us. So many of our business processes, whether yeah. they're customer processes or employee processes are created because of lack of trust. Yeah. One time somebody uh, screwed up, they did it wrong. Like they filled it out wrong. They uh, added added wrong or something, or somebody actually did something uh, intentionally wrong. You know, they claimed an expense that they shouldn't have claimed. And uh, after that, they said, okay, well, now all of this type of expense has to be individually approved by a manager or something of that nature. So you get one exception and suddenly uh, every other person there from there on forward has to deal with extra process, extra paperwork, extra steps. Uh, and, you know, in many cases, uh, these can be uh, just eliminated. There's a, a good new book out uh, uh, by uh, Reed Hastings of Netflix uh, that is uh, No Rules Rules. And he talks about how they pretty much chucked their rule book. Uh, they got rid of rules for uh, dress codes. They got rid of rules for expense reporting, for vacation reporting, got rid of vacation time entirely, uh, and just left it up to people's judgment. Uh, and they found that they performed better. People did not abuse the system. Uh, if a person is abusing your system, chances are uh, they are the wrong person for that job. Pretty rare that you're going to find a person who is great at their job, uh, great with the, their customers, doing a wonderful uh, mm. piece of work for the company, but is somehow cheating or, you know, uh, they, they, those don't go hand in hand. Sure. Uh, and so that, you know, that's one perspective. Another perspective on trust uh, comes from Paul Zak. He is the oxytocin researcher. Uh, mm -hmm. He found that oxytocin, uh, and this is a great one for all you neuroscience fans, uh, is the hormone of trust. Wow. Uh, when you measure higher levels of oxytocin in people's bloodstream, uh, there is a higher level of trust. You can even artificially uh, induce trust by uh, sort of shooting oxytocin up people's noses, although uh, it's not really a practical thing to do uh, in a business setting. Although it's, I'm sure there are people thought, wow, if I can only inject that in the air when yeah. I'm uh, closing a sale. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, he and his team uh, did a really amazing study 
they went into high performing companies and low performing companies as measured by their financial results. Mm. And uh, they did a bunch of surveys. They also took thousands of blood samples. And what they found was that high performing companies were high trust companies, not yeah. only measured by what people said, people uh, through their survey answers had said, we are a high trust company. Uh, you know, that uh, I trust the bo my boss, I trust the company, they trust me, but also they had higher levels of oxytocin in their bloodstream. Yeah. So when you show that you trust your employees or your customers, uh, you know, you are first of all, creating our reciprocal trust if, if I trust you, Tarun, you're more likely to trust me and vice versa. Uh, that, that's natural. You know, Amazon does this. When uh, I make a rare return to Amazon, mm. uh, they, uh, if I say take it to one of their lockers or drop it off at uh, UPS, as soon as that item is scanned in, but, you know, by the time I get home, uh, I, if I check my computer, I may find that they have credited me for the item I return. Now, mm. they have not seen anything yet. All they know is they scanned a barcode at their locker. There could be nothing in the box. The, I could have damaged the product. It could be some other product, but they're showing, okay, Roger, we trust you. Mm. Now, if I had multiple situations where I had somehow not returned something properly or at mm. all, they would probably not trust me anymore. Right. They would probably wait until they actually got the thing in hand, but they established trust and to me, that makes me trust them, which I do. You know, they, and also the other thing that creates trust, of course, is dependability, you sure. know, delivering on your promises. Yeah. And they always deliver on their promises. If they say it's going to be there Tuesday, 99 times out of 100, it is there Tuesday. So yeah. between their trusting me and also very rarely letting me down, uh, that creates a high trust situation, which means I keep doing business with them. I think twice before going to, say, eBay to deal with a seller that uh, may be well-rated, but I haven't dealt with them before. I don't have that same bond of trust there. Now I yeah. trust eBay that I'll probably get my money back if it's screwed up. Nevertheless, uh, it's much easier for me to do business with Amazon. Yeah. So, so I can hear the leaders out there uh, saying, yeah, but what about, how do you safeguard against the abuses? You know, oftentimes we build processes, not because we think that, most people can't do it We, you know, I use the expression, you've got to idiot proof your systems because there's always going to be one person that doesn't want to work within the boundaries. And, and then you set yourself up. I, I apologize if I'm stacking this question, but you set yourself up for a situation that when you have to address, like say with employees, if you have to address poor behavior, if you have no uh, boundaries in place, you've got nothing to talk about. They can just, uh, well, you never said that was a problem. You never made it a rule. And right. so well, how can you now come back on that? So talk to talk to leaders or maybe uh, managers who are thinking, well, how do I manage the small percentage of people that won't do the right thing if I abolish the rules altogether? Right. Okay. Well, I think there, there's a, a few levels uh, to that question, Tarun. Uh, one yeah. is um, if you know, if you really need people who, uh, if, if, you, if you have to hire people who need rigid rules for everything, mm -hmm. uh, you're probably hiring the wrong people. Now, I realize in some businesses, uh, you know, where perhaps um, you are uh, like a fast food restaurant where you're hiring 
uh, people who this is their first job ever in their life, uh, you probably do have to have some procedures and rules just to sort of, uh, you know, set some bumpers uh, to keep them in line. Mm. But, uh, you know, once you move a little bit farther up the food chain, where you think that most people are going to behave responsibly, you don't mm. want to create a lot of processes for the 1% who aren't going to. Uh, first mm. of all, if you find, say, you say, okay, we, we had this dress code that uh, you know, people that explains people are going to wear a shirt with a collar. Guys are going to wear a shirt with a collar. Mm. Uh, you know, women uh, can't uh, wear uh, uh, midriff bearing clothes or you know, something like that. Mm. Uh, okay, that's fine. But you say, you say, well, look, you know, people would probably behave, do, you know, dress appropriately anyway for the situation. So. And maybe that situation changes uh, from day to day. If you've mm. got the big, uh, you know, uh, company's biggest client coming into the office, maybe everybody dresses up a little bit. The rest of the time, maybe they wear a t-shirt, who knows? But uh, you know, the people would mostly behave correctly. When somebody is not doing that correctly, mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to wait for their performance review six months later to bring up the fact or point out that they're breaking mm -hmm. a rule. You simply tell that person, you know, uh, that shirt you were wearing with the crazy message on it uh, mm -hmm. uh, is uh, not really appropriate. Uh, somebody else might find it offensive or distracting. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, if you know, you just need to have that. Say, and you, you aren't saying uh, our rules say you can't have shirts with messages on them, or mm. uh, you just have to say, look, this this isn't appropriate. Uh, you know, yeah. based on you know my assessment of the situation. And if the person keeps doing it, uh, then you can uh, you know have the next discussion, which is, mm. look, you know, we've we've addressed this a few times. And clearly, uh, you know, our definitions aren't matching up here. So, uh, you know, you're, you're going to be gone or you will be gone <laughs> if it happens mm -hmm. once more. Uh, but, uh, you know, another way to deal with these situations, well, I, you know, I mentioned how Amazon does it where they trust you until they can't trust you. And I, I don't right. know that that's their specific process, but I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. it works that way. Yeah. Another thing that they do is establish boundaries because, you know, uh, even if I'm pretty sure my bank trusts me. But yeah. I don't think they would just uh, leave their money out on the counter saying, well, you know, take what's yours uh, uh, and leave, leave what isn't yours. You know, that, yeah. that clearly wouldn't work. Uh, some situations require controls uh, that so. aren't, you know, complete trust. What Amazon does, you know, they, they appear to have very loose security. You're always logged in when you go to Amazon.com. Uh, they never log, you have to reformat your hard drive to get logged out of there. You know, they don't expire you. They don't uh, challenge you saying, hey, you're logging in from a new device. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, we were going to start asking you questions or any, you know, they don't do any of that. You're always logged in. That one click button is always there, ready to go. Uh, mm. And uh, they do that because they want to reduce the friction for you placing that one click order. They know that if you see a product you like, and you've got that one click button there, uh, yeah. and that's all you have to do. And they're telling you, click this and you'll get it on Tuesday. Uh, mm. They will sell a lot of stuff. But, but if you decide to, say, send gift cards to people, okay, which is almost like sending cash, mm. uh, if you decide to ship a product to an address that you haven't shipped before, not the one that is stored in your one click ordering uh, process, yeah. then they will say, okay, Roger. You know, we trust that it's you, but we're going to reauthenticate you in some way. We're going to uh, ask for your password again. We're going to ask for your credit card again, uh, because this is a higher risk transaction. Most companies don't do that. This takes mm. more effort, takes more coding effort. Uh, 
you know, their IT people say, oh man, you know how difficult that would be to do where you can do this, but you can't do that once you're logged in. But that's what Amazon does. They've got, uh, from my external perspective as a customer and from what I can mm -hmm. see, they've got zones of safety where uh, you are always, once you are logged in as a customer, in a zone that is safe enough for you to do one-click ordering, to shop around, to see, you know, I'll, I'll do a, anything that isn't high risk. Uh, but if you want to do something that's higher risk, then they will uh, have to check you again. I would contrast that with uh, United Airlines, who I used mm. to be a very good customer of, and perhaps sometime in the future I will be again, yeah. uh, even though their uh, processes sometimes drive me crazy. Uh, their website, uh, even though I might be using the same computer that I've been using for five years, uh, and I'm always on their website, for some reason, every few weeks, united.com would log me out and say, Roger, we don't recognize your device. We have a few questions. Then they go back to some crazy questions that I stored uh, years and years earlier, like, what's your best friend's birthday? Uh, what kind of books do you read? Uh, and I'm trying to remember, gee, would that like mysteries or thrillers or romances or... You know, who knows? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and that is every time, well, that, that doesn't happen every time, but also they log you out. So if yeah. you're inactive for a few minutes, you're logged out. If you leave the site, you're logged out. Yeah. Every time you have to log back in. Now, to me, uh, you know, if they implemented something like uh, Amazon, they do have a few areas that are high risk. They have mm -hmm. had fraud problems where people would say transfer hundreds of thousands of miles from, mm -hmm. you know, a legitimate account to somebody else's account. So somebody logs into my account and uh, transfers uh, hundreds of thousands of miles to their other accounts, which yeah. are then converted into tickets or cash or who knows what. Uh, that's a high risk thing. And it, it's costly for the airline because then they have to probably make it up or they end up with a really unhappy customer who's probably suing them. So uh, they say, well, no, we've got, we've got to have these tight security procedures rather than taking this nuanced approach of saying, okay, Roger, We'll let you shop for flights. We'll let you book a reservation in your name. Uh, we'll let you do all these things that are pretty darn safe uh, for us because chances are a crook is not going to book a reservation from uh, your home airport in your name, uh, yeah. you know, which you've got to prove, uh, prove who you are when you get to security at the airport. Uh, you know, that, that's a very low risk transaction for them, but I can't do that. Uh, you know, it's like either you're inside security and you can do anything. So to me, uh, you know, this is true for uh, employee processes as well. You know, uh, give people latitude where it's low risk. If something yeah. is high risk, uh, you know, if you're handling large amounts of cash, okay, you know, you want to have appropriate precautions. You can't just be totally yeah. trusting in those situations. Yeah, so so you're not saying uh, get rid of all the boundaries. You're just saying assess whether a boundary is necessary in every circumstance. You know, like you use the example of dress codes, it may not be as critical to have a dress code in your environment. So don't worry about it. But you may not give the password to the safe to all of your employees. It's uh, you know assess your boundaries based on the the level of risk and the level of damage that can be done if the boundaries are not adhered right. Yeah. Right. From uh, I'll, I'll give you another example. It's, I think really um, applies to business. And these are actually classic examples. One thing I try to do when I was writing Friction was not just choose digital uh, examples, mm. 
uh, because uh, you get dated pretty quickly if all you're talking about is sort of the latest uh, social media tool or something. Sure. Uh, so I went back and I looked at uh, probably the greatest CEO of all time, Jack Welch. Yeah. Uh, and a few of the things that he did, uh, he was a real friction reducer. He didn't necessarily call himself that, but he blew up layers of management. He eliminated a lot of this hierarchy that slowed mm. down communications, created these uh, uh, you know, hierarchical approval processes, hierarchical communications processes, yeah. where if uh, you as a sales manager uh, wanted to talk to somebody out on the manufacturing floor, you would have to go up through your hierarchy and across and down to make that happen. Uh, he yeah. eliminated all that. Uh, yeah. And one of the things that, uh, one, one example that uh, he gave was uh, work clubs where a, in a meeting, between union workers and uh, high-level managers, which never would have happened in the past. Uh, these were not really friendly groups. It would have gone through some kind of a, a grievance process or something else. Yeah. Uh, they were just having a sit down uh, and managers said, how can we make your job easier? And this is mm -hmm. something that most people are not accustomed to hearing from their mm -hmm. boss or from anybody in management. It's like, how can we make you more productive? How can we get more work out of you? Uh, instead, how can we make your job easier? And one worker piped up and said, okay, uh, I'm handling sharp metal all day. I go through a pair of work gloves about once a week. To get in a new pair, I have to leave my workstation, go to another building, go to the tool crib, stand in line, fill out a form, find a manager, a supervisor someplace to approve it, take it back to the tool crib, wait in line, get my gloves, then finally go back to my building and my workstation. That can take an hour or two, depending on whether there's a line, whether uh, I can find a supervisor quickly or it takes a while and so on. Uh, and the reason that rule was put in place, that this process was put in place was because somebody thought that these guys are gonna steal their gloves, steal our gloves if we leave them uh, you know, close by. So we're gonna yeah. make sure nobody steals a $2 pair of work gloves. Right. Uh, and uh, the quick solution was put a box of damn work gloves by the guy's machine. Yeah. Uh, guess what? Uh, they didn't all get stolen. The guy did not have to walk around uh, the plant looking for supervisors. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a huge time saving. And plus, it added an element of trust. That told that probably skeptical union guy that, hey, management trusts me now, mm. at least a little bit. Uh, yeah. So, you know, to me, that's, that's just a little microcosm uh, example. But, you know, we all have those situations. Another Jack Welch example was a newsletter that was having to be approved by literally six levels of management before it went out. It was like the wow. company newsletter that went out to clients and such. Uh, and uh, it, it had won awards, but it still had mm. this process. Well, someone said, well, look, nobody has ever not approved it yeah. ever. So yeah. don't worry about it. Just send the damn thing out. You know, if you screw up, you screw up, but that's okay. Yeah. No, there's that's great examples there. And, uh, you know, the whole process of making decisions to solve one problem, but inadvertently creating more problems, you know, that example of gloves to save on a $2 pair of gloves, you're losing an hour of productivity, which probably costs the company far more. And, uh, you know, I see those things all the time. I, I have this little conversation I have with myself when I walk around the shopping center or I engage with different businesses where that's a bad design idea. That's a good design idea. You know, if it creates uh, extra steps for me that are unnecessary. I sort of catalog them as I go. And, and I make note of 
uh, businesses that make it easy for me and um, and make note of businesses that make things hard for me. In the little time we've got left, talk to me about why people are doing that. Uh, you, you reference a, um, a part of neuroscience that you call system one and system two, and it's all about the way that your brain processes and learns information. Uh, and tell us about why people look for the easy way through a particular challenge or obstacle. Right. Well, uh, system one and system two are uh, creations of uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, and they refer to two ways of thinking. And he wrote a, Kahneman wrote a great book, Thinking Fast and Slow, highly recommend it. Mm. Uh, even though he's a Nobel winner, uh, it's actually quite readable. Uh, the uh, uh, system one is fast, it's intuitive, it's rule-based, it's um, emotional. So, uh, and then system two is that rational sort of mental spreadsheet type of thinking and decision-making process. And, and their key insight was that people don't like to be in system two. Uh, you know, if you are trying to persuade customers with facts and rational arguments and so on, you're pushing them into this uncomfortable mode of thinking. Not that you sometimes don't, you, sometimes you need that stuff. If you're selling industrial machinery, you better have the specifications and performance characteristics of your product because it's, it's got to do the job. Sure. But uh, if for most of our decisions, we try and make them in system one. Uh, we could not go shopping in a supermarket if we were making system two decisions all the time. Instead, no. we go down the aisle, we bought the same thing we brought, bought last time. That's a, that's a rule-based, a heuristic. Oh yeah, that worked last time. I like that brand, bingo, bingo. Uh, or we look, hey, that one's on sale. It's cheaper than the rest. Another heuristic. I'm going to buy it if it's on sale because uh, I don't really care about the brand. Uh, and most of our decisions we make that way. Occasionally, uh, maybe we're deciding to buy a uh, an energy drink. Uh, there, we say, wow, I've never bought a product in this category before. I want to know if there's sugar in the product. I want to know how much caffeine there is or so on, something like mm -hmm. that. There, we'll kick into the system too, but we'll reserve that for maybe, you know, one out of 20 purchases or something sure. uh, where we say, okay, this is something new that I'm buying or something that I'm, I want to do differently than I've been doing in the past. Yeah. Uh, and that applies really across the board. Mostly people like to make those simple emotional decisions. And uh, there is, uh, according to Kahneman, there is a law of least effort that applies mm. to both physical exertion, that is people don't like to physically exert themselves uh, and will choose the easier path, uh, and also cognitive exertion. Cognitive exertion is... Uh, maybe making a difficult decision, making a choice where there's a million choices. Uh, that's a sort of cognitive friction. Uh, reading instructions is cognitive friction. You know, if whatever your process uh, is requires customers to read how to do it, uh, if they have to read the fine print, you are yes. adding cognitive friction in there. Uh, you know, it should be simple and intuitive. You know, I've seen so many examples where I'm using a website or a mobile app I cannot figure out what to do next. I'm, I'm a reasonably digi digitally savvy person. I've been using the web since its earliest days. Uh, I've designed websites. I've used a million websites, uh, but I still get to places where, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Maybe there's some cryptic little icons. You know, what's this thing that looks like a triangle mean? Who knows? You know, got to click it to find out. Or now these days, everything is hidden behind three little dots. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. I guess I'm going to have to hunt around for what I'm looking for because I can't find it. Uh, you know, Steve Krug, uh, years ago in the early days of web design, wrote a great book, Don't Make Me Think. 
And uh, uh, it's, it's a great book because the title really says it all. In fact, um, uh, I know Steve would not mind me saying this, but you almost don't have to buy the book to get the concept. Uh, he says, you know, at any point in the process, if a customer is having to think when they're using your website, then yeah. you're doing it wrong. You know, your logo should be where they expect it. They should be able to immediately tell what your website is about, what your company is about. Mm. You know, if they can't do that, if they're trying to figure out, okay. And I, I do that. I get, you know, uh, email from somebody who says, you know, I uh, want to talk about something. I go to their website. I can't figure out exactly what it is their company does. Mm. You know, are, are they providing training? Is that coaching? Yeah, or is say that, that all uh, the time? Yeah. You no, know, yeah. It's, it's like, you know, you can't immediately tell. Eventually, you know, if you mm. uh, click a few times, you can say, okay, I, I kind of get the idea now. Mm. Uh, but it should be intuitive. So, you know, that, that's that system one, system two thinking again. You know, if, you, if you're forced yeah. pushing people into this thinking uh, mode, uh, they're not comfortable there. and Don't do it. Yeah. And so for anybody that's not familiar with uh, the book, Thinking Fast and Slow, it's a great read. And uh, the concept of heuristic is your brain's tendency to fill in the blanks with previous knowledge or previous experience. Your brain wants to go on autopilot and uh, reserve the uh, really hard task of learning and thinking for really important things. And so, you know, like you're saying, this signs that make you i see billboards all the time and some marketing genius has created this billboard that doesn't tell you what the company sells and you just look at it and thinking they paid twenty thousand dollars for that billboard but i have no clue what their product is it's just some slogan or some picture that doesn't make any sense to me and you know you see this all the time uh we, i was just joking with my wife and some friends yesterday we've got this new cafe in our area and it's become a franchise they have 10 pages on their menu but they thought they'd be clever and rename all their menu items with clever names so the problem is you can't immediately find what you would be looking for. If I want bacon and eggs, it's not called bacon and eggs. It's got some fancy name. So I have to scroll through 10 pages of uh, menu items and look at every single item and read the description before I know that it's bacon and eggs. And that's just frustrating to me. I don't want to take that long to order well, my breakfast. Yeah, that, that is unfortunately really common to room. You know, companies uh, are sometimes trying to be cute. Sometimes they're not really thinking, but... Uh, they do things in a way that simply is not uh, obvious. Yeah. You know, it's, um, uh, and they don't realize the disservice they're doing and the sales that they're losing because of that. You know, when, when you force people to work extra hard, uh, they aren't going to uh, respond to that. You know, yeah. you, you will still get some sales, but you don't know what the sales would have been had they been higher. You know, one really simple thing, there's some research from the University of Minnesota that shows even the font can make a difference. You know, designers, uh, some designers at least, uh, love to use cute, fancy fonts because it makes their design look avant-garde and different than all those other sites out there that use, you know, plain looking text. Yeah. Well, the fact is that uh, plain looking text is easier for our brains to process. Uh, and mm. so what the researchers at uh, Minnesota did, they, uh, had people read two sentences about performing an exercise. It was like some simple exercise, like put your head down your you know, chin down your chest and raise it and turn it. And uh, two sentences, same exact wording. Half the people saw it in a simple Arial font, a sans serif font, very just plain, boring font. The other group saw it in a brushy font, very readable, 
but a little bit more difficult to read because the characters are a little bit uh, blockier looking, uh, kind of brushy looking. Yeah. Uh, same size, same wording, everything the same. The first group said it would take about eight minutes to do. The second group said it would take about 15 minutes to do the same exercise. So uh, the same wording, the second group thought it was gonna be twice as hard to do this exercise. Right. Uh, and what was going on there was that the cognitive effort in reading that text translated yeah. into physical effort in doing the exercise, perceived yeah. physical effort. So, you know, if you want a customer to do something, don't use a complicated font. Don't use long wordy text. Uh, use a very simple font, simple wording, high contrast. Uh, none mm. of this gray on gray, make it white on black, black on white, something where, you know, the customer's brain can process it effortlessly. Yeah. So good. And I, I see this, I do a lot of consulting in schools. I was a school teacher in a pe previous life. And uh, I see this a lot with uh, teachers who struggle to manage behavior in a classroom is that the complexities of getting the job done or complexities of uh, ha having students follow rules and systems and processes, the students disengage and they, they don't want it because they look at it and they say, ah, this is too hard. I don't even want to try. And it may not be hard, but the way it's been presented just looks complicated and it just creates disengagement at a uh, really frustrating level. Um, Roger, I'm aware of the time and I, I'm so um, grateful for you taking this time to talk to us. I, I found this conversation very fascinating. I think in, in recap for anyone that's listening and watching, you know, uh, go back and listen to this a couple of times because Roger's really dropped some real uh, gold here about removing friction, removing obstacles from your customer and employee experience. And what you will find is that you increase engagement, you'll increase loyalty, you'll increase trust with your the team that you lead and that really ultimately what we want is we want teams and we want customers that uh, feel connected to us that uh, trust us and they want to go where we're going as we lead them so thank you so much Roger for all of this uh, wonderful information I I know there's so much more to be said and we may have to do another conversation about this but tell us a little bit about your books now and how people can get in touch with you if they want to dig into more of what you've talked about today Okay, well, the best jumping off point uh, for me is rogerdooley.com, R-O-G-E-R-D-O-O-L-E-Y. Right. -E -E and uh, there you can find links to my social media profiles, my books. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter and LinkedIn. I am Roger Dooley on both of those. Uh, the, my two books are Friction that we spent most of our time talking about. My early bo earlier book is Brainfluence, uh, which talks uh, about our offers 100 short chapters, uh, each one based on uh, research or sci scientific principle uh, with uh, an illustration of how to apply that to real business problems, ranging from setting prices to writing headline copy uh, to choosing the right image for an ad and so on. Uh, it's a, a very uh, marketer oriented, but really addresses all of those issues that come into marketing. But I try to make it very accessible and uh, translate the um, sort of complicated work that the scientists do into actionable advice. Great, great. So uh, we can get those books on your website? Uh, well, via my website or via uh, Amazon or whoever Amazon. your favorite bookseller is. All right. Do you have audiobook versions? Uh, yeah, funny you should ask that. Uh, yeah. I have one for Brainfluence. The 
Friction audiobook at the moment is only available, uh, get this, talk about Friction, on MP3 CD. The <laughs> Audible version uh, is on vacation uh, while the publisher sorts something out uh, with okay. the Audible people. Uh, can't explain that, but, uh, uh, you know, I guess... Uh, I am no stranger to friction. And uh, so yeah. the fact that I should encounter it myself <laughs> is no surprise. I've got to, I've got to admit, I've um, switched to Audible now uh, because I just get through so many more books than uh, reading them. And it's that whole thing of uh, just being able to access the material in a mode that is much easier to consume. And so uh, we'll definitely be checking out those books and I encourage our listeners to do the same. Thank you, Roger, so much for talking to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you, Tarun. It's been fun. Great. See you later. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you got a ton of value out of that episode. Don't forget to let us know what you thought in the comments. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover next time, we'd love to hear from you. If you know anyone that would benefit from the content that we produce, please like and share this channel. And we look forward to having you next time on the Tarun Stevenson Leadership channel.